I'm pleased to be invited to speak to so many peers and colleagues, especially since it seems likely I will never get the chance again. That's because United States regulatory authorities appear determined to put the small company my husband and I built with our own hands and the industry I represent out of business entirely. My story in this industry begins in just about the worst way any story could possibly begin, with a cancer diagnosis. I was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma. When the doctor gave me the news, I was shocked and terrified and despairing. But I took that fear and directed it toward making a meaningful difference. After trying for years to quit smoking, I discovered vaping, which you here in the UK have long advocated through public health policy. I can't tell you how many times I must have sat in front of a US Senate committee member or White House official and beseeched them. If you want to understand the value of vaping as a tool for smoking cessation, look to the UK. We now know what came of those efforts. Under a court order over a year ago, the United States FDA was charged with creating a regulatory framework for dealing fairly with the health and safety of vapor products by September 9th of this year. FDA knew that they didn't have the time or the resources to give our products fair consideration. But instead of asking for help, they let the 9-9 deadline pass and let the more than 500 companies subject to their decision in an unstable and probably untenable position. Let's talk about the scope of that impact. The FDA's arbitrary ruling effectively criminalizes thousands of longstanding businesses in communities all across the country. Those entrepreneurs now have to junk their inventory, fire their employees, stiff their investors, and defer their dreams. We are the proverbial little guy. And like little guys all throughout history, our segment of the industry often gets short shrift in the negotiations between government regulators and deep-pocketed corporations that so often determine the rules for the rest of us. We are the thousands of small business owners who manufacture, distribute, and retail open systems products in vape shops all over the United States. We are proud of what we have built. We feel honor in what we do. We have made every attempt within our means to comply with FDA regulations at great time and financial expense in a system designed for us to fail from the very beginning. My company personally submitted several hundred thousand pages of documents to the FDA in an attempt to comply with this one pre-market tobacco application standard. The decision doesn't just make a mockery of that earnest work. It also makes the more than 10 million Americans who made the switch to vapor products in our vape shops with our liquids into outlaws too. Oh, they can still purchase flavored vodka, filterless cigarettes, cigars, chewing tobacco, caffeinated soda pop, marijuana in countless varieties, opioids, and sedatives, no matter how many people become addicted or die each year from those products. But their freedom as Americans no longer includes the right to use a product with none of the well-established, deadly effects of those other substances, and which has undoubtedly saved the lives of countless former smokers. Let us mourn for a moment too, not just the current consumers of open vapor products, but the untold number of smokers who may yet have discovered the potential of those products to move them towards a healthier, happier life. The FDA didn't have to do any of this, nor did they have to create a rift between the publicly traded companies and the independently owned businesses in our industry, or between the big companies and the small ones. 
FDA could have approached this by allowing companies that have always been registered with them and inspected by them to continue serving their customers while approaching the broader issue from a basis in sound science and true public health, rather than a politicized process centered around the focus group tested buzzwords. But the reality is that the FDA has failed, failed. To the FDA, we say you have created a tobacco-led monopoly over the vaping industry while crushing our small businesses. To those who may cheer the increase in their market share brought on by this act of regulatory arson, we say, shame on you. To our customers, we say that we did everything within our power to avoid this outcome and that we will never stop trying through every legal means and every means of advocacy we have at our disposal. We are not surrendering our businesses or abandoning vapors to cigarettes. We will fight for them. And there is one other group I want to address with my time here. It's the activist and the press who, whether because they are misguided or malicious, spread the falsehoods and distortions that directly led to this tragic outcome. It is long past time for some candid honesty about what, about what has motivated this outrageous decision by US federal authorities. For years now, a horde of activist groups, hell-bent on controlling the personal choices of their fellow citizens, has been targeting our industry for destruction. They are funded by the most wealthy foundations in America at the direction of unaccountable billionaires, and they have been strong-arming the United States Congress and White House to engineer a result that they have failed to achieve through public persuasion. To do it, they relied not just on campaign contributions and Washington lobbyists, they also used bunk research from discredited operatives like Dr. Stanton Glantz, whose most widely publicized study on vaping had to be retracted from the medical literature for its bogus methodology. They have falsely claimed, despite all logic and economic common sense, that our products are marketed to minors, even as their own advertising material uses adolescent themes and images to inform young people about nicotine. The average age of my customer is 42 years old. And I know that because we card everyone who walks through our door. Yet even when their far-fetched and hypothetical theories of harm couldn't pass the smell test, they retreated to a fallacy called the precautionary principle. Until we could prove that vaping was harmless, as that backward thinking goes, we would be prohibited from the market. In this malign effort, those activists had enthusiastic help from nearly the whole of the national news media. By focusing on the messaging of Bloomberg dark money NGOs and beneficiaries of MSA funds, our media and political class have criminally neglected the harm reduction aspects of vaping under the guise of moral virtue. The years added to their lives by our products are never mentioned. Just last month, FDA records gathered by freedom of information laws revealed that America's most preeminent news organization, the New York Times, would send its articles in their entirety and before publication to FDA officials for review and feedback. Neither that reporter, Sabrina Tavernese, nor her editors have summoned the integrity to offer an explanation. Even four days ago, the Wall Street Journal ran a gushing story about a new advertising campaign from the perversely named Truth Initiative, which claims that nicotine, quote, can worsen symptoms of anxiety and depression. But that is entirely untrue and is contradicted by studies that even Truth Initiative has on its own website. Incredibly, the journal even quoted a Truth Initiative executive admitting that it is unknown whether a causal link exists between nicotine and those symptoms. 
Remember, these are publications and outlets that routinely praised and awarded themselves for taking on Big Tobacco. And yet, on a decision that has given Big Tobacco exactly what they wanted, a monopoly, they remain silent, marching arm in arm with the very businesses they once excoriated as merchants of death. These journalists who have of late have had no reservations about taking on the mantle of the guardians of public health, yet they have ignored the seminal fact that millions of Americans have successfully quit smoking using a harmless and affordable device that far exceeds the efficacy of any other nicotine replacement therapy. More Americans are using vaping than use any single pharmaceutical drug on the market today. Yet the news of FDA's arbitrary ban passed with minimal coverage and zero complaint from those news outlets. In the last few weeks, I have heard from an endless thread of crestfallen business owners, along with vaping consumers, desperate about how they will continue to access the products they believe are essential. But even through their dismay, I am also hearing a constant refrain. We are not going to stand for it. If federal health authorities or deep-pocketed foundations imagine they can steamroll the American public by administrative dictates that are devised behind closed doors, they will soon discover why the United States Constitution begins with we the people. We intend to, co to commence a public campaign that counts more than 10 million Americans in every state and congressional district along with their families and friends. We will be at FDA's doorstep demanding answers or forcing them through freedom of information laws in the courts. We are going to shine a megawatt spotlight on the journalists and news outlets that have been colluding with activists to deceive the American public. We are not going to sit still while the, while the FDA endangers our health, crushes our livelihoods, and treats the American people like gullible idiots. You don't discard people's lives like that, and we are not going to stand for it. As we say in Arizona, this is going to be more than a fight. It will be a reckoning. Thank you. Great job. You're getting cheers. Oh, yeah, have a seat. Thank you, Amanda. If they weren't awake after their sumptuous lunch, they certainly are now. So thank you for that. Congratulations. You. you have to tell me your secret. Um, Right. It is a chance for those of you who haven't yet given your speech in the form of a very brief question to do so now. We have not a lot of time, but a little time. Otherwise, we wouldn't want those uh, online question hogs on the platform to get all the glory, would we? Do we have, do we have a question? I'm looking for the stadium lights. Make it. Can someone tell me if we have a question? Yeah, I'm back, Patrick. Okay, sorry. Okay. Hi, it's Jazz Olawalia from Brown Medical School and School of Public Health. That was, I have to say, very impressive. Uh, I hear a lot of talks. I'm a professor. I do a lot of talking, and I hear a lot of talks. Uh, so I'm going to get you to teach in my class uh, in the spring, my tobacco class. Um, yeah, I think that was, you know, there were very good thoughts in there. I mean, it's, they're human lives. Uh, when I was, a, I'm a physician. I don't see patients anymore. Uh, but when I was an, a practicing physician, it's true, these are human lives that, uh, that are sort of being lost each day that goes by. Um, I grew up in the US, but in India, as you all know, uh, these products are all banned, and instead, cigarettes and smokeless tobacco. See, I'm giving a speech, Patrick, I just realized. Yeah, I, I noticed. You noticed, yeah. Well, I'll, I'll end with one. Again. Yeah. No, I didn't give a speech before. It was a question, I think. Oh, believe um, me, you have. 
<laughs> so I, I just one thing about the, the gutka in India. This is the smokest tobacco. And I, I don't know if you guys know about this thing. The odds ratio for head and neck cancer, if you use gutka, is somewhere about 30. It is probably the most deadly product on earth. It's incredible. So, you know, to some extent, murder is being committed uh, in India every day that these things are banned. I do have one question. There it is, Patrick. See, question. Um, you he would get I, I don't know if it was an accurate number, so I'm curious. You said, it sounds like you said 10 million Americans have used vapes to get off cigarettes. That sounds like a very, very, very high number. Is that what you said? Or maybe you can that, that is what I said. That's our estimate of the total number of people who use vape products in America. Oh, who use it, uh -huh. not who are off combustibles because of it. It's two different things. Right, right. That, that's our number of the total users of vapor products, many of whom have transitioned entirely. Next question. Thank you. Judy Gibson from ENCO, the International Network of Nicotine Consumer Organizations. Um, thank you, that was excellent. I, I actually read your writing too, and it's brilliant, so thank you for that, okay. Amanda. Um, it's interesting, I, I'm, be really, I'm dying to see what America's going to do to this, I'll use my favorite word again, clusterfuck that they have. Apologies they have, for the technical language. That they have embarked upon. But, you know, I was reading a, a paper the other day, the newspaper, per se, overseas online, um, which was describing the fact that Bang Bangladesh uh, government are currently now looking at regulating uh, e-cigarettes. And it actually reported that the WHO, FCTC probably, was on one hand of the regulators and the campaign for parent-free kids was on the right-hand side. Um, and what they said was, you know, basically you just need to ban them. That, that was their advice. You need to ban them, prohibit them. And then it just sort of ended sort of saying that the government have said that they will take these views very much into account before they embark on a regulatory process. And as you know, this has happened in the Philippines as well, and I'm sorry, uh, Patrick, I, I, this is now very short, right? It's very, very short. Um, but as you know, I mean, the Philippines did actually put their hand, you know, they actually found out the fact that their regulatory board was being bribed. I would love to know how we generally, uh, and you, because you're very much on the button, you could possibly do something in but how do you try and get a focus on what is happening in every single LMIC, which is corruption and payback and everything else from Bloomberg and CFDK and everything else, because it's, it's appalling, it needs to be stopped. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, definitely this is a global fight at this point. Um, you know, certainly the global fight is, is not one that I've been involved in, but we have countless fields of battle in the United States between uh, local city governments, state government actions, um, yeah, federal actions. So, you know, I, I think at any given time, I've got three or four of these legislative battles on my hand in various locations. Um, and but, but the themes seem to be constant across the globe. And I, I like your comment, campaign for parent-free kids, because that's exactly what it is, right? Um, children do matter, um, and children deserve to have healthy, happy parents who have access to the things that they need uh, to quit smoking so that they can be there for their children. Um, I'm one of those people, right? I have, I have two daughters, they're 11 and nine, 
and I think their right to have um, their parents as non-smokers is just as important as anybody else's right. Um, but that, that being said, you know, this is a battle that, that is a hard one to fight because our opposition is very well funded, um, very organized, um, very in bed with, with many governments around the world, um, and, and quite coordinated. And I, I, my hope out of everything that's happened recently in the U.S. is as difficult as it's been is that our industry can really unite behind a message and, and, and you know, try to get back some of that narrative that they've stolen from us that I, I think is exemplified in that comment that you made about you know, campaign for parent-free kids. Um, they've dominated that conversation. Um, it, it was a focus group tested concept. You know, uh, children should not be vaping, absolutely not. In my business, we take very strong measures to make sure that doesn't happen. Um, but at the same time, that is not the entire story of what's going on here. And I think it's, it's criminal that the media and the governments have been complicit in promoting that message to the exclusion of all other valid points. Another question in person? Um, are disposables a good or a bad thing for the category? Well, I'll, I'll give a personal opinion on that, right? Um, you know, we had uh, a very vibrant industry that was doing quite a good job of converting smokers, you know, prior to, to some of the disposable boom that's come out in the last few years. Um, I don't know the, the quality on some of those products is, is questionable and concerning. Um, that being said, I, I think there is a way that those can be done properly um, where they may have the potential to help someone. I think they, they have their upsides to them. You know, for some folks, they may be helpful in certain situations. But, um, you know, I would say that um, we were certainly doing a good job of converting smokers prior to that development in the industry, and I think we could continue to do so. Who's next? Who's next to test my patience? Oh, that's a good choice. Um, we may not need you, but if necessary, I appreciate, <laughs> I appreciate the... Uh, I, <laughs> that may be your opinion, madam, that I couldn't possibly comment. Hey, Patrick, I'm ready. Kevin Bird, uh, CNT Nicotine and, and North American Nicotine. I thought it was inter interesting yesterday, as Todd Cecil mentioned, um, I think he mentioned, if I'm saying it correctly, that the FDA uh, didn't necessarily take into consideration the impact of their regulation on, on industry and users, um, that their focus was on on uh, you know particular areas, and as well as that, what that transition and the requirements of that transition in industry, based on the regulations that they that they're implementing, and I, and I guess my question is, have you had any interaction with the FDA on this? And lessons to learn would be, it it would you know I I think industry seems to be open and wanting to to deal with regulation. However, 
when you find out after the fact of all these changes. I mean, I can tell you from us as a nicotine supplier, the amount of nicotine that we supplied yesterday is going to be the same amount of nicotine we supply tomorrow, whether it's coming from us. Basically, I'm saying the users aren't going to go away because of this regulation. And without necessarily having a clear understanding and at least time to prepare for that path of how that transition will, will happen to ensure that those users ideally stay in these lower harm products rather than you know, give up and end up back on, on combustibles. So I'd just love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for the question, Kevin. Um, you know, you started off by referring to Todd Cecil's remarks yesterday, which I have a lot to say about that. So anybody feel free to ask me my questions on my thoughts of that talk. Um, I imagine um, they're not dissimilar to other folks in the room here. Um, but yeah, Kevin, that's right. Our customers are not going away. They depend on these products. And you know, a, a lot of customers aren't even aware of, of what's going on with FDA action, but the, the ones who are aware um, are quite panicked about what's happening because they know what these products mean in their daily life, right? And, and being able to access these are very, very important to them. Um, not everybody um, knows how to make their own liquid or has access to ingredients to do DIY, right? People rely on, on these uh, products that are manufactured to high standards, safely produced, um, that they've been using my company. We've been around for 10 years. Our customers have been using the same liquids from us for 10 years. Um, those people certainly are not going away. Um, you know, they don't want to go back to smoking. And, and, and I don't think very many of these businesses are going to make a decision to abandon their customers to smoking. Um, I, think, I think we're going through a period of transition. Um, you know, obviously the dust has to settle on all of these recent events and we'll see where the industry lands. Um, but, you know, there's innovation that can happen. There's change that can happen. Um, you know, where there's a will, there's a way. We made an entire industry out of nothing once. And I certainly believe in our ability to do that again, um, you know, if we have to take a different approach to this. It's Anyone else in the room but we, before we have some online questions, which I'd like to slip a couple of them in if no one is desperate at the moment. Um, one online question, uh, Amanda, is, is it your experience that independent, non-disposable companies will be financially unviable without flavored products? Absolutely. Um, so um, in my experience running uh, my state trade associations, I've dealt with a lot of flavor bans and, uh, you know, at the municipal level, several that have passed. And without question, every vape shop in these cities that have enacted flavor bans have immediately gone out of business. Uh, in my company, flavored products are about 92% of what we sell, uh, flavors other than tobacco and menthol. Um, and so I, I find it very hard that any open systems vape company would be viable uh, with only tobacco and menthol remaining. Another online question before we go back to the floor. What was the small business option, opinion, I should say, what was the small business opinion of the youth standard and how dependent was small business on FDA guidance and updates which were put out after the submission deadline? Right, that's a great question. Um, the small business opinion of the youth standard. Well, uh, you know, I, I think going into PMTA, there was quite an awareness that, that FDA needed to be provided um, data on, on youth use, preventing youth access. 
Um, the, the standard that FDA put in the denial orders, um, this need to prove that um, flavored vaping products had a benefit over and above the tobacco and menthol products that outweighed the risk to youth, um, that, that was a goalpost that moved, right? Well after we were into this process, well after many of you in the room were into this process. Um, and, you know, going back to Todd Cecil yesterday, he remarked that all of these denials were considered on an individual basis. That's factually untrue. Um, we have 100 members who have, just about all of them have gotten these denial orders. I've seen all of the denial orders. Other than a paragraph break uh, in the middle of it, um, there's virtually no difference in any of them. They're all identical. Uh, the middle section is broken into two paragraphs in some of them, and others it's one long paragraph. And I wouldn't consider that independent uh, evaluation uh, by any one standard. Um, I think, um, you, you know, we, we were relying on, on guidance from FDA. Um, in the one-year review period for about the first 10 months of it, I would say FDA was acting very reasonably with our members. And of course, um, I was very heavily involved in a lot of FDA interactions with our members, attending FDA meetings, um, yeah, attending remote regulatory inspections with them, helping companies respond to deficiency letters, which I saw quite a number of, um, also mostly identical, interestingly. Um, and, you know, but FDA, during that period, um, I would say that they appeared to be acting in good faith with a lot of these companies. And I would say it wasn't until, you know, maybe the last two months of, of this review period, ending on September 9th, that FDA took a, took a very different position. All of a sudden, um, communications from FDA to companies became very cursory, um, skipping the filing period, moving companies straight to review and sending them a short email notification of that um, rather than going through the full process that they previously had been doing. Um, and so I, I, I think you know, FDA changed that goalpost a couple of months ago. And I, I am of a very strong personal opinion that it was a political decision. Uh, two more online questions before we release you to go back to fight the good fight. Um, first, how easy will it be for consumers to simply add flavor to tobacco-flavored products and get around this and make it worse by mixing stuff that shouldn't be mixed? That's a very valid point, and I think one of the things that, that deserved more consideration from FDA was the impact of the black market and what happens when consumers start engaging in black market behavior. Um, for example, you know, finding their own uh, flavoring items to put into unflavored liquid. Um, the, 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 you, you know, history, recent history is rife with examples of this happening. Um, mixing e-liquid, there's, there's a little bit involved to it. You know, those in the room certainly know that. Um, we saw during Ivali what happens when black market constituents get added uh, to cannabis containing liquids. It, you know, it resulted in, in quite a number of, of deaths and um, a very bad problem in 2019. And we certainly don't want to see that happen in nicotine liquids where people start mixing in random flavors that aren't intended for e-liquids into their products. And our final question of the session, in your experience, did you see the online aspect of the open business as being a major weakness vis-a-vis -vis youth issues, as it would be difficult to age control as well as in your stores? 
you know, I don't think the research ever bared that out. I think in the research it, it was shown very strongly that um, youth were accessing these products through straw buyers, purchasers who were of age and then provided the products to underage people. And I think that's why after Tobacco 21 laws came into effect, we saw such a huge decline um, in the youth numbers over that one year time period after that law became enacted. Um, certainly, I, legitimate online businesses I don't think are an issue. Um, now what we're starting to see is a black market emerge on platforms like TikTok, Snapchat, and I think that kind of online uh, vape activity is where most, most youth access products. Well, Amanda, you have stimulated both the post-lunch crowd and the online uh, platform crowd. We appreciate both. We appreciate you being here. Hopefully, it won't be your last appearance at the GTNF. Thank you so much. Thank you.